Well, hey, good evening. My name's Jack. I'm the lead pastor for Bethany's campus that meets over in Lake City on Sundays and also the pastor for mission and community outreach for all six of our locations. So I Whoa, not going well. Are we clear? Is that my beard? <laughs> I needed a beard. <laughs> He's like, bend it out. Here, I'll just do that. Is that good? Uh, so I'm the pastor for mission also. And I'm here tonight because uh, Richard texted earlier today and said, hey, I've, I'm, I'm not, not well. So we want Richard to be well. So he asked uh, me and Scott's son to sort of fill in tonight. So Scott was here at 5, and I agreed to be here at 7. And so I'm grateful to be in this space with you. And thanks for welcoming me uh, to be part of getting into God's word together. So let's take a moment to pray together, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Let's pray. God, just as we, as we just sang, uh, you are the God who is with us, and so we're grateful that in this very room tonight, your spirit is present. Some of us, God, have come feeling uh, the absence of your spirit. Uh, we feel the weight of many things going on in our lives personally. We feel it in our lives collectively. Uh, and so, God, in, in your presence with us, would you uh, enter, enter into our lives in a real way? Would you do that through the opening of your word and the studying of it? Would you do that as we come to the table in a little bit here and receive uh, communion? Would you do that through our fellowship and our singing? Would you be with us, God? And we thank you that you are the God who is with us. Uh, so be with us now as we open your word. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, uh, we are in the third week, I believe, of a new series called Can You See It? where we're building a common vision of the kingdom of God. So we're we're looking at this thing called the kingdom of God, uh, and we're, we're, we're kind of trying to both like, define what it is the kingdom of God, because it's, it's kind of one of these things that's tossed around a lot, popular thing to say, but what does it really mean? And we're also asking kind of what does it look like to be a citizen of that kingdom? How do we live as people who are about God's kingdom, living God's kingdom together in community as individuals? And we're doing that through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' kingdom sermon, which is in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're specifically looking at a piece of that sermon that we know well, the Beatitudes, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So it's actually 12 verses, Matthew 5, 1 to 12, kind of doing a deep dive over the next several weeks on those verses. So week by week, each Beatitude. And today we're in the third Beatitude, which is simply this, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. And I'll just say this at the outset as we enter into this beatitude. This, for me personally, maybe it is for you, is the most difficult of all the beatitudes, uh, bar none. And uh, the reason for that is, is this beatitude, this idea of meekness, it just confronts a problem that I'm facing. And I would argue probably that all of us are facing at some level, whether you're young or old, you're gay or straight, Republican, Democrat, independent, believer, unbeliever, it doesn't really matter tonight where you stand this beatitude is for you, and it confronts you. And the problem it confronts is the problem of self. Uh, so psychologists, sociologists, theologians, social theorists, they're all kind of observing that we're living in this new epoch, this new era, and they're calling it the age of narcissism. Uh, I heard this NPR broadcast last summer called On Hidden Brain. How many of you listen to Hidden Brain? Shankar Vedantam. So there's a few sociology nerds out there. My tribe. Uh, so anyway, I was listening to this, 
And Vedantam is uh, interviewing this woman named Jean Twinge. She's a psychologist, psychology professor at San Diego State University. And Twinge is the author of a couple books. I actually haven't read the books, but loved the podcast. So I invite you to look it up. Her books are Generation Me and The Narcissism Epidemic. And uh, she says that our whole culture is just from reality TV to social media to politics to church <laughs> has become obsessive with our focus on the self. So here's, here's actually her speaking on that podcast. She, she says this, Our culture has changed in so many ways, and the feature I always come back to is that we are more individualistic now than ever before in our history. So she's talking about the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, which means this. This is still quoting her. We're more focused on the self, less focused on social roles, more focused on individual triumph, less on shared success. I mean, look at any sport, right? Professional sport. And the, at the extreme, which means uh, at the extreme, that can turn into this narcissistic, att narcissistic attention-seeking of everybody, saying, in effect, look at me. Look at how great I am. Look what I did and how great my life is. So, for example, and this is still quoting her, so don't, no shame. You have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these mechanisms that allow you to tell people what you had for dinner tonight. I don't know if any of you did that. Maybe. It's probably good. Uh, what a wonderful vacation you're going on or are on now. You're on some island, you know. This amazing thing your kids are doing in school or in sports. She says this, these are all kinds of ways to boast about yourself to more and more and more and more people. Likes, followers, tweet, retweets, all that. And by the way, that's not to say that if you're on social media doing these things that you're somehow going somewhere other than heaven, uh, <laughs> that you're a self-centered pig or a narcissist. I'm not saying that at all. I've taken a few selfies. But that is to say that we are facing an epidemic of the self in our society. So just a few examples. Look at our politics, okay? Uh, Friday's inaugural address. I don't know how many listened to it. I, I did. And there's this line that really stunned me, America only, America first. And that's, that's what was said, which, by the way, just to check the room real quick, is something that is being articulated on both sides and the center. So Republicans, Democrats, Independents are saying the same exact thing. Some with a little more, you know, whatever. <laughs> but it, we, nobody's immune from this in our political system. Look at our consumer habits. Uh, we are willing to throw something, this is, you know, planned obsolescence. We're willing to throw something into a landfill that, despite the fact it's not broken and it will never decompose, I learned this week that aluminum foil never decomposes, whereas aluminum cans do. Just wrap your head around that. So uh, I don't know why, but I've spent a lot of time. I bought a house this year. My family did, and spent a lot of time at the dump. If there's any homeowners here, you know this. Go to the dump a lot, and I've seen things. It sounds like a line from like a horror flick, but uh, <laughs> it's convicting to go to like go to the dump sometime. It will convict the heck out of you, and. Uh, there are literally people that are throwing things away there. Couches, refrigerators, uh, TVs, computers, whatever you want, just stuff, in order to make room for more stuff and more stuff, the next thing and the next thing, because that thing, eh, it's out of date. And, you know, Goodwill won't take it. Look at our freeways. I-5, constantly being choked with what? Single occupant vehicles. Look at our social media. Uh, according to recent research, the average millennial there's a lot of you in this room, will take 25,700 selfies in your lifetime. Hmm. 
93 million selfies are snapped globally every day. On Google servers alone, 24 billion selfies were uploaded last year. That's 13.7 petabytes of data. And I don't, I'm not a tech person. I think that's a lot. Is that a lot? I see a few people nodding. That's a lot. Look at your own life. You know, what are your conversations about with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your significant other, your roommates? Are they about you? I was sitting on the couch. This is just a little personal confession here. On Thursday night, my wife and I just finished watching Sherlock season four. No spoiler alerts. I won't say anything, but it's good. So, although I thought, I thought episode two is better than three, so that's as much as we'll say. Okay. We're sitting there talking about the weekend. Are we going to go on the women's march? What are we going to do? Marna, my daughter has a basketball game on Saturday, so we're just talking about the weekend. And I don't know how we even got in the weeds, but I found myself saying to my wife, this is a little dating, marriage advice 101, don't do this. I don't feel like I'm getting what I need from you. <laughs> just, that's bad. It's not going to go. There's other ways to say the same thing. So, <laughs> uh, and the sad thing is she, my wife's wonderful. We've been married 15 years. And she said, well, what do you need? And you know what? I didn't have an answer. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> hadn't really thought about the question. Uh, I don't need to press this point much further, but this self-centeredness in our culture, it just leads to all sorts of damage in our lives, in society. Like, it obviously leads to selfishness, this um, desire to use people as a means to get things, right? It leads to pride, this propensity to see yourself and your needs as more important than somebody else's. It leads to this capacity to ignore, even rationalize your own imperfections. I mean, Instagram, it just airbrushing everything almost, which is precisely, getting back to the Beatitude, what it's all about. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. It's, 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 it's convicting, it's confronting, it's challenging. It challenges our incessant self-focus. Uh, it, it kind of flies in your face a little bit, which is a diff it's so, and we're going to get to what meekness is, it's a difficult thing to be told you're being selfish. Like, n I'm sure none of you and this is a little parenting advice. Don't tell your kids this. You're being selfish. Like, it's not, there's other ways to say that as well. So parenting advice, marriage, dating advice, all for free. Okay. But Jesus does this <laughs> in his own way. And I love the way of Jesus. It's way better than mine. He literally is saying you're being selfish. Blessed are the meek. He's challenging and confronting his disciples uh, with this idea kind of inviting us on this journey down the road of meekness. And as we'll see, it's, it's, meekness is not thinking less of ourselves. That's self-deprecation. That's not meekness. It's thinking of yourself less. It's other focus. So that's kind of the cliff's notes of tonight's sermon. If you wanted to nod off, we'll take communion in about an hour or two. I don't know. <laughs> so becoming unself-centered. How might that happen? That's what I want to explore with you tonight. We're going to look at three questions in this little verse, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. What is meekness? Whose is the earth? So blessed are the meek, what is meekness? Whose is the earth? They will inherit the earth. It'd be good to know what that is. Is that worth pursuing? And then so what? What shall we do? What's kind of the practical way to walk that out? How, how might we work that into our lives? Okay, are you with me? All right. So first, uh, what is meekness? And... Uh, there's other translations of this. I, I have a few jotted down here because I think it's really interesting. So the Phillips translation, which is one of my favorites, says this. Blessed are those who claim nothing for themselves. The message translation, some of you read this. 
You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. I love that. NASB, some of you read that. It's in our pews. Blessed are the gentle. Uh, New Living Translation. God blesses those who are humble. And I don't know what your translation that you're using says, but it gives you this right there, this really interesting insight into this beatitude and this word meekness. Uh, Because it shows you two things. There's this wide range of meaning to that one word. Wide range. There's lots of ways to, to put it. And that within that wide range, we have totally misconstrued what the word means in our language, which is to say this, meekness is not weakness. I know the words rhyme, but they don't mean the same thing. You can't do that. They are actually, in Jesus' theology, in the economy of God's kingdom, they are utter opposites. Let me show you. Uh, meekness, meekness is literally this Greek word praus, P-R-A-U-S. There you go. And it has all kinds of forms. Paul uses it in his letters frequently. Uh, Jesus is called, he calls himself meek in Matthew chapter 11. Take my, yoke up, or take my yoke upon you. I'm meek, I'm lowly. He calls himself that. Um, and it comes from this word for an animal, a powerful wild animal, that is now submissive and receptive, okay, a tamed wild animal. And uh, the best illustration I can think of for this is from The Black Stallion. How many of you read the book or saw the movie? It's like a 70s movie. This is going to date me. This is mine. It's got Mickey Rooney in it. Uh, and I, I had this when I was a kid. It's the picture book version. It's by this author named Walter Farley. Check this out. You're going to feel sorry for me. Uh, you can zoom in on this. That's my address when I was growing up, Spokane, Washington, my phone number. And this, I was going to check this book out until like 24 people. And nobody checked it out. So um, anyway, <clears throat> yeah. Don't feel sorry for me, but I love the story. And the reason I love it is, is this, this character, uh, Alec Ramsey, it's Kelly Reno is the actor. He's like 50 now, but he's a kid in the story. And he's this boy, and he ends up shipwrecked on this island, right? Remember this? Um, maybe you know the story. Deserted island. He's separated. His family thinks he's dead. But he's shipwrecked with this Arabian, this wild Arabian stallion called the Black. Nobody could ride it. Nobody could tame it. Nobody could break it. Wild. He's alone. He's orphaned. He's, he's going to die there. And if you remember the story, he, bef- he and the black befriend each other. There's like a picture of him in the story handing the black some food, and they become friends, and then, you know, he goes off to race horses with Mickey Rooney or whatever. It's a great feel-good story. And uh, the, the key is that no, nobody except this kid, Alec, could ride the black. And he's, the black is wild. The black is not tamed. He doesn't break the black, but the black allows Alec to ride him nonetheless. And that is a picture of meekness. Literally, that's what meekness is. This enormous power, this horse, has voluntarily submitted to this young boy. Uh, it's huge, this huge animal. And think about it. This animal could take him down. It has actually, in this story, taken a few people down. And uh, this boy can ride him bareback, hands-free. It's beautiful. So the black sort of expresses this gentle strength or this fierce grace. And, and that, that brings us into this aspect of meekness that makes it really unique amongst the Beatitudes, which is to say this, that meekness is what you'd call a paired polarity. I, I've kind of heard people talk about it this way, which means that pe- uh, to be meek means that there are these fused opposites. A polarity is something that's op- opposite, contradictory, okay? The fused opposites inside of you, okay? So gentle strength, fierce grace, okay? Fused inside of you. Uh, and, and so that's what meekness is. And the mystery of the gospel is this, that somehow those, that can happen inside your heart. 
and, and work out and be expressed in your life. You can be gentle and yet really strong. You can be fierce and yet full of grace and truth. That's amazing. So that's what meekness is. Let, let me show you an example of this in Jesus' life. I've said this at Bethany Northeast, and uh, I hope it's being said here, but the reason I want to look at Jesus' life is because before the Beatitudes describe us, they describe Jesus. Jesus is the author, and the, he is the Beatitudes. He lived, he's the only person that's ever lived that's ever been able to live them out, okay? So it's, I think it's good to look at the life of Jesus and just ask, where do we see meekness in his life? And there's, there's so many examples of this, if you think of his life. Sort of gentle strength, submitted power, fierce grace. But there's one that I want to look at tonight. It's in John chapter 8. Um, and I'm going to read it. It's one of my favorite stories in the gospel. And feel free to turn to it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay. Here we go. And this is the story. In your, your Bible, it might say this. The story of the woman caught in adultery. My Bible here says Jesus deflates the rigorists. Love it. Listen to this, John chapter 8, and it's interesting to me that if you, in your Bible, my Bible has it italicized. Some people have it bracketed off as if it, they don't know if it occurred. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> like, hmm. If, all, if I could take almost any story out of the Bible and just keep it, this would be my one. I love this story. So here you go. Early the next morning, Jesus has been out teaching. He returns to the temple, and the entire crowd that had been following him around came to him. So he sat down and began to teach them. But the scribes and the Pharisees brought into him a woman who, was, who had been caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand in front of him and them, and then said to him, Master, this woman has been caught in adultery, in the very act. According to the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women to death. What do you say about her? They said this to test him uh, so that he might, they might have some good grounds for an accusation against him. But Jesus stooped down, began to write with his finger in the dust on the ground. And, but they persisted in their questioning. <laughs> and so he straightened himself up and he said to them, let the one among you who's never sinned, you know this, throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and began to doodle in the dirt. And when they heard this... <laughs> They were convicted of their own, by their own consciences, and they went out one by one, beginning with the eldest, until they had all gone. And here's the best part. Jesus was left alone with this woman, still standing, where they had put her. Think of where they put her, just in front of everybody. And he stood up and he said to her, where are they? Has, is there, did no one condemn you? And she said, no, sir, no one. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now go home and leave your life of sin. Uh, it's, a, it's such a beautiful, I'm sorry, it's a beautiful story. And it actually, it shows us just the, the beauty and power of meekness in Jesus' life. Uh, and, and, and let me just unpack that with you for a moment. Uh, it, it means that we see together in Jesus, tremendous, you see gent, gentle, tremendous strength, and this courageous grace. So I just want to look at those two aspects, these kind of paired polarities in Jesus. So uh, gentle strength. Look at his gentleness. One of the main things you see about Jesus in this story, you know, as opposed to the teachers of the law, his adversaries, her adversaries, is the way he doesn't treat this woman the way they do. <clears throat> okay? They are just scornful toward her. You could kind of hear it. Maybe I 
was a little uh, dramatic in my reading, but they just, they put her in front of everybody, like publicly shame this woman, right? Um, they're just dripping with sort of disdain for Jesus. They, they want to catch him for a system, like bloodlust, they're out for something. And, and look at Jesus. He doesn't treat her that way. He doesn't even treat them that way. Isn't that interesting? He gets down on her level. He, he, he doesn't stoop to theirs. He gets, he, he's, he's with her. Shows her just deep sympathy. He's filled with his compassion. And he asks these questions. Where are they? Where are your accusers? They're not here. Do they condemn you? No. And neither do I. That's this, just his fierce grace, gentleness. And then also his bravery. Look at his bravery. Jesus doesn't just get on her level. He stands between her and her accusers. And here's what I mean by that. You know that whole doodling in the dirt bit? I don't know if you grew up in the church, but, and I didn't, but I've heard it. I've been around the church enough. It seems like everybody wants to know who, what he was doodling. Like, we are just preoccupied. I've heard sermons on this, and people kind of speculating. Was it their names? <laughs> you know, what was it? Was it some scripture? And here's the, here's the, here's the beauty of it. We don't, we, have a clue. we don't have a clue. John, the author of this gospel, doesn't tell us. And you know why that's important? It doesn't matter. I'm sorry to say... <laughs> But that's not the point of the story. And if you focus on that, you preoccupy yourself with that, you've missed it. When we fix it on that, what Jesus is writing, we're missing the point. Think about this. If you just stop that story right there in time and you think about it, it's kind of mind-blowing what Jesus is actually doing. If he's saying, if you want to stone her, you're going to need to stone me. He's standing in between her and them. Um, I think if he were talking to God, it's like, hey, I know I came to save the world from their sin. And I know a big part of that plan is the cross. And so, but you know what? I'm, I'm kind of willing to divert the, from the plan right now. I'm willing to divert. Think about that. No cross, no you, no me, no story that we, at least as far as we have it. And, and Jesus is, because he does not take away their free will. He says, go ahead, throw the first stone. Go for it. In love and with, with bravery, he says, hey, go, I'm right here. And uh, Jesus is incredibly brave. He's unbelievably courageous in this moment. And, and, and what this means is this. On the one hand, a meek person, if you're thinking about this for yourself, a person growing in meekness is a person also growing in courage. Uh, his doodling in the dirt is a form of courage. It's a way of just saying, I stand with you. Between you and your accusers, I'll stand here as long as your accusers stand here as well. As long as there is injustice, I stand here. As long as there is corruption and hypocrisy and duplicity, I stand here. Those things have no place in your life or our world. I will not leave you or forsake you. That is Jesus, our Lord. He will not leave us. He's come to break the power of those things in our lives and the, the hold they have on us. And he's invited us to do the same with people. Meek people are courageous people. And meek people are also gentle people. Never disdainful, never haughty. Like Jesus, just read the Gospels. He's not sarcastic. He doesn't use it as a form of humor. Uh, and I know we're all into that in Seattle, but he's not condescending or jeering or mocking. I mean, you see Jesus with this woman. She's clearly below him in her moral attainments, right? He, that's not a big deal. He's with her. She's clearly below him in her status. Women were below men. doesn't matter. And he says, you know what? Even though you're below me, you're not beneath me. I can 
get close to you. Even though you might have done wrong, I'm not going to accuse you of, of I'm not going to accuse you of wrong. I'm not going to convict you of wrong. He's incredibly gentle toward her, drawing her out into his story. So how can you tell if you're, being, if you're becoming meek and you're not just weak, you know? There's a big difference. Are you, are you a paired polarity? Is that, are you a paired polarity? Gentleness and strength. Fierceness and grace. Are they all, are those things in your life in some way? Are you saying no to injustice where there is injustice? There's a lot of injustice in our world. Are you declaring this is not how things should, should be and not just ranting on Facebook about it, but actually or writing a check, or whatever, but actually standing with the accused, uh, walking alongside the accused. Quick side note, this is why these marches that happened this week, Monday from MLK Day, and yesterday for the Women's March, are so significant. And whatever you, th- just whatever you think about the marches, okay, uh, whatever was being communicated in the marches, I marched on Monday with my family, uh, and they were, there were definitely messages that were being articulated that I don't agree with. Uh, but those marches and the messages are not the point. Just like the doodling in the dirt is not the point. Don't focus on that. Here's the point. Standing with people who are feeling very vulnerable in our world. People who are feeling marginalized. People who have been snubbed and shut out because of their gender, their race, their nationality, their sexual orientation. Jesus would say, I stand with you. I stand before, I stand for you. I stand between you and your accuser. Doesn't mean I agree with everything, but I, I choose to stand, I choose to walk. Uh, so those marches, or however you would choose to do this in your life. I mean, there's lots of great ways. Whether you get involved with one of our, our mission partners, like our, we have a good neighbor team now with World Relief Seattle that we're building to befriend and walk alongside a refugee family. That's a great way, very productive. Uh, with tutoring and mentoring in a local school, there's one right there. Uh, or seeking friendship with somebody at work and your neighbor that might be just in one of those categories. There's a lot of different kinds of people that aren't in this room seeking friendship with them. However you choose to approach it, we, as followers of Christ, have the opportunity to say, I am with you. Like, I'm, we are with you, the church. And I don't have all the answers. I'm not trying to pretend that I do. I know you don't, but I can listen. I can learn. I can walk. And so more than anything, that's what meek people say. I, I don't write you off because of who you are. I've been there. I'm, I'm there now. I'm in the journey. Me too. Meek people are me too people, right? Which leads us to the second aspect. So that's the first. That's what meekness is. Have a kind of idea of it a little bit? Let's move to the second thing, which is this. Whose is the earth? So blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. And uh, this is sort of a promise to us. We're going to be given the earth. But listen to this. The meek don't invade the earth. Blessed are the meek. They will invade the earth with their amazing army. Jesus doesn't say that. They won't overpower the earth. This isn't manifest destiny. They won't overrun the earth because of of their sophisticated military, all that stuff. None of that. They will inherit the earth, which means this and only this. (laughs) The earth is a gift, just like Jessica read. It's not the fruit of our effort. Uh, this is the way it was, was for the people of God throughout their promised land journey. Like, the people of God won all these battles, not through their own strength, but because uh, they had to fight. They had to do lots of fighting. But more often than not, it was 
fighting after God stripped them down. Like you have the story of Gideon. Remember this story. God strips the army down to almost a laughable size, right? And then he says, hey, night before you guys go out, I need you to circumcise all the guys. And uh, this is going to get a little, are there any kids? So circumcision, uh, all I got to say is probably not the greatest military strategy, okay? I'm just saying. So that's not the thing you do the night before you go into battle. That's all I know about military strategy. <laughs> so, okay, that happens. And then God says, hey, that was not enough. Let's, let's get the band together and do a little parade, you know, like trumpets and let's march out. Like, let's do it like that. Bum, 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 bum. Hey, we're on our way to invade your city. You know, and like, this is, this is the people of God. Like, they're marching forward constantly, this parade of vulnerability. That's who we are in order to demonstrate this, that our victories are not ours, that they're a result of God's activity in our lives, that God's power and God's presence is coursing through us, and we're just totally, totally incapable of anything, <laughs> uh, which is to say this meekness is not only not weakness, and by the way, vulnerability, weakness, very different in my opinion, but we'll go there another time. So meekness is not weakness. It's also not just merely activism, okay? You know, there's the meek have a vision for justice, uh, and I've already talked about that, for peace, reconciliation, renewal. It's all rooted in God's vision for the future, the wolf and the lamb, all that stuff. It's good. But it's significant that the meek care about the means to that as, as much as the ends. Justice at any cause? No. That's not meekness. That's something else. See, we often think that things are so broken, like they've gotten so bad today, that certain things are happening or aren't happening. I've just got to do something, right? I've got to fix it. I've got to save the world, you know? I don't know if any of you ever woke up one day, you're in college at SPU or UW, and I've got to save the world. I'm going to, you know, did you? I did that. I was at UPS, Tacoma. And I thought, yeah, I've got fa- to save the world. I'll be a pastor. <laughs> uh. Anyway, so, and we have this dizzying array of worthy causes that invite us to do just that. Uh, they're good causes. Don't hear me wrong. I said, marching, that was good stuff, good, great, important work. But when we engage the issues as if those, if that's the way to, that's going to solve everything, and that presupposes or that the human condition can be fixed through human effort, and uh, and the world that the world is ours to save, that there's a big problem in that thinking. So the way the way of meekness recognizes that the world is not ours to save. It's not ours. It's not ours at all. Blessed are the meek; they will inherit the earth. Whose is the earth? I mean, this is what God says to Job. Remember the story of Job? Like, he's just lost it all. He's like the poster child for loss. And after all of it, his friends, all these people are trying to explain to him why and what he needs to do, right? And God says, hey, Job, Job 38.4, where were you when I laid the foundation for the earth? You know, and it's silent, like, oh, that's right. I wasn't there. Not mine, which is another way of saying what we read this evening. King David came to this moment of recognition. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And wow, it gets even better. The world and all who live in it, all unqualified. The earth is the Lord, all who live in it, which includes you and me. That's good news. It includes immigrants and refugees, too. 
It includes Muslims and Christians and unbelievers as well. It includes black and white, Asian, Native American. It includes gay and straight. It includes the President of the United States. It includes citizens of the United States. It includes non-citizens. It doesn't matter if you're documented or undocumented. The earth is the Lord's and all who are in it. If you find yourself in the earth, you are inside God's story in some way. It doesn't matter. And God has a story for you. And so as followers of Christ, this is, our, this is what our confession needs to be. As people who want to seek meekness, the world's not ours. God, I confess to you. It's not mine to fix. It's not mine to save. It's not mine to damn. I just to serve. Because we have a servant king. That's the invitation tonight. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Would you serve the world? Would you do that? It's not much, but it's enough. Which is why Jesus then invites us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, later in Matthew, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is just another way of saying, God, would you do your will, not my will? Would you do it in your way, not my way? In your time, not my time? I just, I trust you, God, for the results. I trust, I trust you, God. Could you express that kind of trust in God tonight? That would be a big step in the journey of becoming more meek. And by the, I'll just say this before we transition to the last point. Kind of my obsessive insistence here tonight that um, we can't fix the world it might sound like an exhortation to passivity or do nothingism. I'm not, hear me, I'm not saying that. Like I said about marching earlier, and I'm not the poster child for being an activist. I've been on one march in my life. Give me a break. And so, but I, I want the church, I want us as a church to be ever active in, in engaging the issues around those, the, the marches we're bringing focus to, injustice, brokenness. Just walk, while, while at the same time walking the path of discipleship in the way of Jesus. Seeing those two come together, that's amazing. I want to invite us as a church that, that when we say we're, we're about making the invisible God visible at Bethany, we do that when we look at the world that's living under the weight of injustice, and we say, you know what, we can lift that weight together. Make the invisible God visible. God is present. So uh, trust is not passivity. Trust is just acknowledging we're powerless to save ourselves, powerless to save the world, and we acknowledge our radical reliance on the grace of God. Uh, the promise of meekness is this deepening awareness of God's grace. And I, I guess a deepening need and desire for it. Are, do you desire more of God's grace in your life? If, if you're nodding like, yeah, I want more of God's grace. I want to taste that. I want to experience that. You're on the journey. That's great. Okay. Which brings us to the last thing I want to look at with you tonight. What shall we do? Like, so I'm with you, Jack. These are, this is all good. What do I do to get that journey going and started? I didn't march. I don't know that school tutoring thing. Maybe that's not my jam. Whatever. Where do you find the power to become meek? Um, how does meekness begin to course through you? And the answer to the question actually comes, it's very practical. I want to get really practical with you as we uh, finish tonight. Becomes, it, it comes to us by way of reflection and application on the source of meekness, the root of meekness. I talked about what it means, but this beatitude is actually a literal allusion to something that is in a phrase earlier in Scripture, in Psalm 37, verse 11. Here's Psalm 37, verse 11. The meek shall possess the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, this 
verse, Psalm 37:11, word for word, it's nearly identical to, to Matthew 5:5, 5, 5, the Greek New Testament. So you look at those and you go, wow, why, what's that all about? They're almost mere images of each other. So Jesus is, is inviting us to unlock sort of the power to receive meekness by reading this psalm. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure. You've found the keys, you know? In particular, in this parallel between, if you read the, the psalm, verse 11 of Psalm 37 and verse 9. So here's verse 11. The meek shall inherit the earth. And then verse 9 says this. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. So here's the key. When you put it together, uh, meekness comes to you by way of waiting on God. And which you're like, great, I've been waiting, God. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for the cure. I've been waiting for you to show up. I've been praying and you're just, it's dead space. I've been waiting for that job. And, I, you know, I've been waiting a long time. And you've been waiting very faithfully, even in this space. What does it mean to wait and wait well? That's a great question. <laughs> and it's probably a subject for a whole other sermon. But if you read the psalm, I'm going to turn to it and read these these. Uh, the first kind of eight verses, I'll just read verses three to eight. I think we have, a, we have some practical handles for this and what it looks like to wait well and then to allow meekness to set in. Here's what the psalmist says. This is actually David again. Psalm 37, verse three. Trust in the Lord and do good. So you'll live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He'll act. He'll make your vindication shine like the light and the justice of your cause like noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. Don't fret over those who prosper in their way and those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Don't fret. It leads to evil. Actually, it says it leads only to evil. For the wicked will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Verse 10, yet a little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently for their place and they will not be there. And then verse 11, the meek will inherit the land and delight in abundant prosperity. The word there is shalom, peace. So what are, what are these people like who according to verse 11 are meek and then according to verse 9, wait, wait well? Well, verse 5, they commit their way to God and trust in God. Verse 7, they are quiet and still before God. And verse 8, they refrain from anger and wrath. They don't fret. So let's look at those. I just want to, we'll put this all together real quick. Three ways to leave you with tonight, practical ways you could start down this road of meekness, okay? Stuff to start working on today. So first, the meek trust in God. Meek people begin their journey by just trusting in God. Like, they believe that God will work for them, that God will vindicate them when others oppose them. That, that biblical meekness is rooted in this confidence that God is not against you. God is not some cosmic killjoy out to get you. That's not God. Somebody told you that. That's not our God. Biblical meekness is rooted in this, this truth that God is good, and God intends good for you and for the world. Do you, do you believe that today, that God is good? I mean, I know some of you do, but some of you are like, I don't know. I'm reading the news. I'm watching the parades I'm, or the marches. I'm, I don't know. I'm struggling with this one right now, Jack. That God intends good for you. You've had cancer. Your family is breaking up. You can't seem to figure your career out. Is God good? Am I just out of God's story? 
Jesus is inviting us to receive God's goodness today as a means to receive meekness also. I mean, it's in verse 4, take delight in God. That's what he says. And that word delight, actually, it actually means to have a soft heart toward God. And, and I said this to our church in Lake City last week, that God wants to replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And I think he wants that because then we can, we can see that he's good. Um, some of us have pretty stony hearts right now. And God wants to kind of just replace that and say, hey, I'm good. Uh, I have lived in Africa, and I lived there for a couple of years in my 20s. And uh, when I was there, I was in these churches, and, and at the beginning of every service, they'd say this, to start the service out, sort of this call to worship. This is East Africa, Kenya. And that literally, that's Kiswahili, that's translated, uh, God is good all the time. And we do that three times as a responsive call to worship. Sort of get this from our heads into our hearts. Now, in a place like East Africa, think about this. It can be really easy to doubt God's goodness. There is abject poverty. The community I was living in is a slum uh, of five to 600,000 people in abject poverty. You've never seen anything like this unless you've been there. Uh, there, is high, there are high rates of infant mortality, really staggering. There's war, there's drought. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, right? And, and I, they, we would sit there and say this, and I, if you did a man on the street like, hey, do you believe God's good? Without a doubt, people looking at me, yes, God is good all the time. So we just need to begin to almost tell ourselves that. Let's try it, just real quick. I won't make you say the Kiswahili. But I, really, I, I believe this. If we, don't, we need to start working this into our hearts. So I'm going to say God is good three times we're going to do this. And you're going to say all the time, okay? Because I think we need this right now. So I'll say God is good. God is good. God is good. God is good. Say that to yourself. Just allow yourself to be reminded of God's goodness. Uh, it's like a little mantra or something. So that's the first thing, the meek trust in God. The second is they commit their way to God. So in verse 5 of Psalm 37, there's this Hebrew word that they, 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 for commit, okay? And it means literally to roll. So if I were to get down on the floor and start rolling around, that's what that word commit means. Uh, I wouldn't, I'm not going to commit to doing that. So meek people have, have discovered that God is trustworthy, like I just said, he's good. And so they roll everything in their life onto God. I can, I can, it's like a trust fall, almost, right? They roll their problems, their business, like your business isn't going well, you know? They roll that onto God. Your relationships, you know, your parents are headed for a divorce or you got dumped. <laughs> uh, your marriage is not going the way you thought it should. Your health, your fears about the future of our world, your frustrations with our future, they roll all that onto God. And like they admit they're insufficient to cope with it. And, and so you just literally just take each thing to God and say, God, I'm helpless. In fact, if you ever thought of this, like if you journal, I don't know if you feel like Jesus is like looking over your shoulder. And so you just got to write out, oh, thank you for the birds and like for the, the beautiful sunshine and the mountains. And oh, Jesus, you're so beautiful. And like, you know, as if he's like going to be upset if you say something like, I mean, read the Psalms sometime. Like, God, I'm kind of mad right now. I, I'm not happy with my life. I'm not happy with the world I'm in. I'm kind of mad at you. Because you said you'd, you'd do something about this like thousands of years ago. And I see nothing right now except brokenness. And so meek people, they commit their way. They roll that onto God. They say, hey, God, 
You're sufficient. To, you can take all that, you know, <laughs> how to raise my kids, how to fix our education system, how to overcome racial division, how to bring healing to my marriage. You can take it all and more. I commit my way to you. And you know why I know that, God? Because Isaiah 9 tells me that the government is on your shoulders. John 1 says, you were there in the creation of the heavens and the earth. Hebrews 1 says that you sustained the world, the universe, by a mere word of your power. These are amazing truths. And so I can roll it onto you. Do you believe those things about our God? Uh, that Christ's shoulders are big enough to carry our socio-political system. He's not only our creator, but our sustainer. That it's just a word of his power can change the course of history. Wow. I mean, that woman, go back to John 8, a word of power, I do not condemn you, changed the course of her life. And that's why we're telling ourselves in her, her story now. Commit your way to God. So trust in God, commit your way to God. And finally, just the meek are quiet before God. So verse 7 of Psalm 37, the meek are quiet and still. They wait patiently for God. They, they discover God can be trusted, and then they commit their way to God, which leads to stillness. So stillness, real quick, and to finish, doesn't mean meditation, yoga, candles. Like that's not, those are good things if that helps you be still. But literally, stillness, if you read the psalm, means to not frenzy, to not fret. That's what the psalm says. And fretting and frenzy are everywhere today, especially online, right? Like if you are, if your cup of coffee in the morning is in front of Facebook, you're setting yourself up for a bad day. Okay, like that's not the space to start to take in like what, how you want to be wired for the day. I mean, there's so much garbage out there. That's not the narrative God wants you to be getting into your heart. Jealousy, self-pity, resentment, anger. Uh, that's going to chew you up and spit you out. Not to say you shouldn't be there. But God would have you come to this psalm and say, don't fret. Don't do that. Instead, be still. Psalm 40, remember this, be still and know that I'm God. Uh, neither, in front of, neither repress nor vent your frustration or cynicism, but just redirect it on God. God, you're good, you're God, and, and I can have a steady calm before you in this very chaotic space, knowing, that, knowing those things in my heart. And uh, to, so to be meek is to, is to be growing in this steadiness in a time of great upheaval. And Jesus wants to bless us with that steadiness. Uh, I love how Thomas Merton, and I'll close with this quote, said it, one of my favorites. And he says a lot about silence, but listen to this. Silence makes us whole if we will let it. Silence draws together the scattered and dissipated energies of our fragmented existence. Let me say that again. Silence makes us whole if we will let it and draws together the scattered and dissipated energies of our fragmented existence. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty scattered right now. And our world's looking pretty fragmented. And Jesus says, be still and know that I'm God. Draw your life from me, and I will do the rest. <laughs> and so I want to invite us to do that tonight, just before we respond by coming to the Lord's table, to... Take a moment, just a moment, maybe a minute of just silence before the Lord, and I'll guide us through it to roll a few things onto God, to recommit our way to God, and then maybe to even express trust in God.
So will you do that with me? And we'll come to the Lord's table. Go ahead and close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything. Don't worry. Just close your eyes and maybe even find a posture that you find comfortable. Uh, it could be kneeling. That's okay. It could be just sitting up in your chair. It could be sitting over. And uh, just take a few deep breaths together. Let me go ahead and guide us through this. God, we, most of us actually, declared to you that you're good. And so we want to begin by rolling some things onto you. So friends, whatever you brought with you, if you can imagine you brought in like a suitcase or a backpack full of stuff tonight, I just want to invite you in the stillness of your heart to start rolling those things onto God, your worries, your fears, your relationships, your upcoming week of work, Whatever is on your heart tonight that makes you feel afraid or anxious or unsure, would you begin to roll that onto God? Go ahead, do it. And then, God, uh, some of us couldn't say you're good. <laughs> it just couldn't come off our lips tonight. Some of us have never been able to say that about you. Some of us have been far from your heart. We don't know what's going on. And so, God, we just take this time in, in our own way uh, to recommit or commit or recommit our way to you. I'll just speak to two groups here. If you're someone here tonight who has been walking with God, you've been to church, you grew up in the church, you, you've been doing this, and you feel like you've been far from him. I want to invite you just to take a moment now to, to express this to God. I've I got to recommit my way to you. I want to walk in your paths. I want to walk beside you. Uh, just like that woman in John 8, I know you don't condemn me, that you're with me, you're for me. And then there's others that are in this room that have never done that. You've never prayed that so-called prayer. And so again, uh, just invite you in your own way. Just, you might fumble through it. God, I, I want to commit my way to you. I have no idea what I'm saying. I don't even know what that would look like, God, but something in this strength true for me. I give you my steps, my next steps. I give you my trust. And so to that end, friends, uh, we're going to come to the Lord's table tonight. And this table, well, there's really nothing about it that is 
It's a mystery that God would meet us in it. Just, I'm just telling you, juice under those covers and some bread. But there's nothing about it as I come to it each time I come where I should be afraid of coming. Like I, sometimes I just think we, we don't want to really come with our whole selves because we've done things or we've we thought things or we just feel like so far from God's story. And I just think of that story with Jesus and the woman who was just accused and the tenderness that moment. And Jesus is inviting you into that, that encounter tonight. He says, hey, I'm that tender. Would you come and receive me into your life? And so whatever you prayed tonight in our just our time of silence there, would you ask him to make much more of this than just bread and juice? Jesus, I'm going to take a little piece of bread and I'm going to make take some juice. And I just want you to course through me. So do something much more of this. And you don't have to be a member of our church or any church, really. We just want you to have a desire for God. So that's you. That, if that, if that's, that's me, you're welcome here. And so the way you can do this is we just here travel counterclockwise. I think that's counterclockwise. Is that correct? And uh, just, there's regular bread and gluten-free bread. The gluten-free is in the blue, uh, blue baskets. And just take, take the elements and then just go back to your seat and just take a moment and receive pray over that, and then uh, just invite you to come and receive the Lord's table. God, thank you so much for your death on the cross and your resurrection from the dead. Thank you that we get to, to come tonight and encounter you in that, in that brokenness and that healing that you offered there. And so would you, would you bring your spirit, would you infuse these ordinary elements of bread and juice with your spirit? Would you be in with and under these things? take them, God, would you move into our lives in a new way. So we thank you for the work you're doing here at Bethany and in our community and our personal lives. We just come expecting more. Praying in Christ's name. Amen. Come as you're ready and we'll continue to worship God.